Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like expanding capacity for sustainable aviation fuel and biodiesel in Washington state and bringing massive new infrastructure online in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Today on The Argument, in the fight against climate change, what actions actually matter? Climate change is our doing, and the way we humans are occupying the planet isn't just unsustainable, it is actively causing present and future harm. Clearly, large-scale changes are urgently, immediately needed at the country and corporate level, for everybody, everywhere. But what's an individual like you or me to do? Should we stop flying on planes, eating meat, using straws, having children? Should we get better at composting? Does recycling matter? Not to get all existential, though I guess this is existential, but does any of it matter? I'm Jane Koston, and today I'm talking to two people who think really deeply about this question. My guests are author David Wallace-Wells, who wrote the book The Uninhabitable Earth, and Genevieve Gunther, climate communication activist and founder of the organization End Climate Silence. David, Genevieve, could you give me a one-sentence nutshell as to where you stand on the issue of personal responsibility on climate change? My basic feeling is that the changes that we need are all systemic. And so the things that individuals can do to make that change are primarily through the political realm, not through their individual behavior. If we want to really halt this problem and, you know, get a handle on it, it means large, large scale changes that are beyond the capacity of individuals to enact on their own. I actually agree with David. This is a systemic problem that is only going to be solved by governments and large corporations leading the transformation of our economies to zero emission economies. That said, rich people across the globe have a responsibility, a personal responsibility to reduce their discretionary emissions, to reduce their consumption, both for climate justice reasons and also simply because we need them to do it if we're going to meet our emissions targets and halt global heating. Could you explain what climate justice means to an audience that is me? Basically, it means that the global north historically has been responsible for the vast majority of carbon pollution, and the global south has been responsible for almost none of it. Since 1990, for example, the top 10% of earners have been responsible for 52% of the growth of global emissions, and the poorest 50% who largely live in the global south have been responsible for about 7% of global emissions, but that hasn't grown at all historically. They have contributed nothing to the exponential growth of emissions and the increased and accelerating global heating that we're already seeing. So the idea of climate justice is that global North nations have a moral responsibility to reduce their emissions first and faster so that there is some room left in whatever carbon budget we still have for the global South to pull themselves out of poverty. It's really, really stark, as Genevieve lays out, that it is the wealthy countries of the world and the wealthy people of the world who have engineered this crisis. So whatever we hear about 
the problem of India, the problem of electrifying sub-Saharan Africa. These are problems. We need to figure them out and do them clean in a way that doesn't imperil the future of the planet. But those are only problems that we have to deal with now because of the development patterns that countries like ours and across Northern Europe went through over the last few decades and centuries. A lot of this has to do with differences in income and class and countries that are politically and culturally marginalized or politically and culturally powerful, which makes climate responsibility a very interestingly tricky issue. Can I just jump in for one second? Yeah. And just say that the word responsibility has two different definitions, right? There's the sense of responsibility as guilt, who is responsible for this crime, who has to pay the price. But then there's responsibility as duty, who's going to take responsibility for cleaning up this mess. Most of the people who are listening to this podcast, and nobody in this room for sure, is responsible for causing the climate crisis. But we're all responsible for now solving it to the best way that we can. So let's get into that. And I love that definitional split because me feeling bad about climate change doesn't really help. So, you know, I live in one of the wealthy countries that helped to cause this and caused this long before I was born. So, David, I'd like to start the conversation with you. Do my personal actions, be they avoiding plastic straws or composting or calculating my personal carbon footprint, as oil companies seem to really want me to do, mm. or switching light bulbs or becoming a vegetarian, in the scheme of averting climate change or mitigating climate change, do those actions really matter? Well, some of them can matter in limiting your carbon footprint. So if you don't eat beef, if you don't take airplanes, if you drive an electric car, you're probably pretty far along in reducing your own carbon footprint. And that is one measure of climate responsibility, carbon responsibility. But ultimately, the things that we need to do to really get a hold of this are way bigger than the, you know cutting your food emissions by 10% or 50% or whatever. It's like the three of us in this room, we can't build an electric grid, a solar farm. We can't make sure that there are Tesla charging stations all across the country. We can't reimagine land use policy or agricultural policy. We can't put an honest price on carbon so that when you're buying gas, you're actually paying for the environmental damage that's being caused, or when you're buying an airplane ticket, you're, you know, those are just things that are like well outside of our capacity to control. And some of the actions that you're talking about, the individual actions, I think can be useful in terms of generating small-scale political energy that can eventually sort of trickle up into politics. If leaders see that we're making changes, they see that we're demanding changes, they may feel more comfortable making those changes themselves. But it's only through policy that we're really going to get where we are hoping to go. And some of the changes that you're talking about, people are compelled to do because they don't want to feel a part of the ugliness of the destruction of the planet more than because they're making a rational calculation about how best to use their time and what they can do that has the highest impact. And for me, that answer is really exclusively through political engagement and political activism, because we really need to shake the whole infrastructure of the world. And the only people who are capable of doing that are the people who are in corridors of power in, in politics and, and the corporate world. They just need to hear our voices screaming at them. My same question goes for you, Genevieve. If we know that about 100 companies are responsible for around 70% of emissions in the last few decades, and so much of their actions have been aimed at rhetorically shifting the responsibility of climate change onto consumers instead of doing anything about climate change. 
does individual action actually make a difference? You mentioned that wealthy individuals can make a difference, but what does that mean? Well, let me contextualize this for a moment. The concept of the carbon footprint is actually a legitimate concept in sustainability research. It was developed by two researchers in the 1990s. But BP extracted this concept from academia and created a multi-million dollar campaign trying to change the discourse of the climate crisis and make, as you said, Jane, everybody feel responsible for causing the climate crisis, but also feeling responsible for solving it by doing things like no longer driving or no longer flying or no longer eating beef or turning off lights or using plastic straws. And as David said, this is impossible. Even if every single one of us brought our personal carbon emissions down to zero, we would not halt global heating. But the fossil fuel industry, as part of their disinformation campaign, wants to make everyone feel helpless, feel overwhelmed, and wants to shift our attention away from the political action that has a chance of resolving the climate crisis to what can't possibly work, which is focusing on our carbon footprint. That said, reducing the discretionary emissions of the top 1% is actually a piece of the decarbonization puzzle. So if the top 10% reduced their carbon emissions down to the level of the average European, which is still quite significant, eight tons a year, we would be about one third of the way to decarbonizing our systems. So we emit as a globe about 30 gigatons of carbon dioxide a year. And this reduction in luxury consumption would reduce emissions by about 10 gigatons a year. So that is just a staggering number. That shows how, for some people, this idea of reducing the carbon footprint is actually key to decarbonization. Yeah, I think the carbon footprint story is interesting for a number of reasons, but one of them is that the implicit message is not just that the responsibility is yours, but also that like you have to live like a monk to make this work. That may have been to some degree true 25, 30 years ago when the alternative systems that we now see right around the corner were much farther away in the distance and much more expensive. But it just isn't the case now that like to green our economy will require an enormous burden. It will require an investment, but that will sort of pay for itself in the relatively short term. And so we're now in a situation where a lot of people often think that like moving into a sustainable future is going to make their lives suck. And the truth is that just isn't the case, but that is what, you know, the companies that are profiting from the status quo would like you to think because nobody wants their lives to suck. Right. Genevieve, you were talking about the 1% and you were mentioning bringing down their carbon emissions. What would that look like? What definite actions would that look like? I'm assuming it's like, you know, not flying Leonardo DiCaprio to climate conferences on very expensive planes and then having the cars that wait outside the climate conference just idle for hours. But what other actions should they be taking? 
Well, you bring up a really important issue. And so by way of answering your question, I'm just going to stop and say that I personally think the high consumption and particularly the flying of people who are in the public eye trying to communicate the urgency of the climate crisis is incredibly destructive to building a political movement. They're actually doing something extremely counterproductive in my interpretation. They're reinforcing everybody's cognitive dissonance with their behavior, which is also a form of speech. They're communicating that they're not willing to make transformative changes and not willing to support transformative policies. And that, in fact, you need to use fossil fuels even to do climate work. And so for me, I feel like the people who need to worry about their carbon footprints insofar as anybody does are the 1% and people in the climate movement. Now, the 1%, what is the 1%? In the United States, I would define the 1% as people making $450,000 a year and above. So it's hard to imagine how much consumption is normalized among these people. It is not at all considered wasteful to buy a new SUV every two or three years as new models come out. It is not all considered extravagant to fly up to 20 times a year. It is not at all horrific to buy an entirely new wardrobe two or three times a year and throw it all away. In fact, this is considered a signal that you are in the rich group and that you are living your best life. And there's a way that a lot of aspects of that life are processed by our culture as actually clean. Like when we think about rich people and the way that they live, we think about whatever their their Pilates and their like juice cleanses. And we think, (laughs) you know, we think about how good their skin looks. It's like we we think of it as like clean and therefore healthy. And we have a way of thinking about poverty as though it's dirty. But when it comes to the climate, the opposite is really the reverse, that it's wealth that's dirty and poverty that's clean. And I think culturally, we have a really hard time processing that properly. Well, that goes back to the climate justice point, is that a lot of the dirt that is created by this clean consumption, this luxury consumption of the rich, is outsourced to communities of color, to the global South, to places where it's not visible to white people in power. And so the dirt is put onto poor people. When you say outsourced, what do you mean? I mean, quite literally, fossil fuel plants are very often cited in communities of color in the United States and around the world. Already today, there are communities and territories in the global South that are being completely destroyed by climate change, even just at one degree Celsius of heating to date. I mean, to the point where people are losing their homes, their communities are flooded, or they're not able to grow food because their ground has been completely desiccated by drought. The climate crisis has begun in the United States too, but the real violence of it is in the global South. And I would argue that the global North doesn't see it because the news media isn't reporting on it. And because a kind of white supremacy prevents people in this country from really recognizing that this is a violence that would feel unimaginable if it happened to their children. It's interesting thinking about this as also being a class issue. The people who are working in 
oil refineries or in coal. On my mom's side, you know, we come from West Virginia, from towns that were largely built by the coal industry, supplied by the coal industry. Everything was paid for by the coal industry. When we're talking about the 1%, the 1% is the most performatively green while not being green. Whereas the people who are working in these industries, their perception is that like, this is my livelihood, which is true. It is a, a class issue in many respects in how we're thinking about this. And that's something I do want to make clear. But David, I know that you wanted to bring in some numbers here. Yeah, I mean, Genevieve mentioned that this is, you know, we're sort of citing these polluting facilities in poor communities, communities of color, marginalized communities. To think about the concrete impacts, like 350,000 Americans, it's estimated, die every single year from the air pollution from the burning of fossil fuels. That is a death toll literally equal to the 2020 death toll from COVID. And it is borne disproportionately by black and brown and poor people. And the dynamic is even more horrifying elsewhere in the world where other countries have much dirtier air than we do. Estimates are as high as 10 million people globally dying of air pollution every single year, 8.7 million of them from the burning of fossil fuels. I mean, that is an absolutely mind-bendingly large impact. And well beyond those who die, there are huge, huge health consequences from this pollution. It may be the case that Air pollution may even be a bigger crisis than climate change. Like, that is how dramatic these impacts are. They happen to be caused largely by the same thing, so we can solve them at the same time. But we're talking about rising rates of respiratory disease and coronary disease and cancers of all kinds and Alzheimer's and dementia and ADHD and criminality and premature birth and low birth weight. And, you know, just like every aspect of human flourishing is damaged by the pollution that is produced by the burning of fossil fuels. And when we think of it simply in terms of like, is the economy going to grow faster or is it going to go slower? I think we really, really miss the huge, huge public health consequences of continuing running the systems as we are running them today. And also the huge benefits we would get from getting off those systems. So famously last year, Drew Schindel, who's an air pollution expert at Duke, testified before U.S. Congress saying that green transition of the American energy system would entirely pay for itself through the public health benefits of cleaner air. You could put aside all of the climate impacts, you could put aside all the benefits of cheaper electricity, and just because we would be healthier as a result, even in the U.S. where air is already clean, the dollars and cents would add up and make that a very, very clear win for all of us. You know, while there is a sort of transition bump, and we should have public policy that addresses it, especially for communities who are already suffering. It's also the case that the obvious economic logic is also the obvious environmental logic here. These are no longer in tension. My name's Haley. I live in Washington, D.C. And the thing I have been arguing about is having children with how the world is projected to be in the time that, you know, they would be growing up. And if we want to subject more people to that. Lyman Stone on one of your previous episodes about the falling birth rate mentioned that a lot of women aren't concerned about having children related to climate change. I would strongly disagree. I'm 23. I'm the age that my mom had me. And every person that I talk to about this that's in my kind of age group demographic feels the same way. What are you arguing about? With your family, your friends, your frenemies? Tell me about the big debate you're having in a voicemail by calling 347-915-4324. 
and we might play an excerpt of it on a future episode. This podcast is supported by WISE, the account that helps you manage your money all around the world. Dining in dollars? Doing business in bot. Wherever life takes you, the WISE account helps you send, spend, and receive in different currencies fast. WISE is the easy way to connect all your finances internationally. Freelancing in France? No problem. Sending money back to mom? Simple. All without hidden fees or exchange rate markups. Join 16 million customers and learn how the WISE account could work for you by visiting wise.com slash NYT. Hey there, it's Ira Glass from This American Life. And the very first place that you can get the newest episodes of our podcast, it's a full day and a half before they appear anywhere else online, is the New York Times audio app. In the app, you also find the best of our archive, hundreds of episodes, plus This American Life shorts, which are handpicked stories for when you want something, you know, short. That's only at the New York Times audio app. You can download it at nytimes.com slash audio app and subscribe to start listening. I read an interesting piece in the Sierra Club magazine, Sierra, my mother is a subscriber, um, by Jason Mark, called Yes, Actually, Individual Responsibility is Essential to Solving the Climate Crisis. And he argued that a fixation on systemic change can lead to kind of a cynical self absolution. But when it comes to climate, you're like, okay, I'm interested in this. What is this going to require of me? Their first thought is you should not have kids or veganism is your only choice. I want to have explicit takeaways for listeners because I think what listeners get a lot is, pardon my language, but we're all (laughs) everybody's we're going to die tomorrow. And if you're an older person, you're like, wait, weren't we going to die in like 1975, what are explicit takeaways for people to have that are real and would make real difference? All right. Well, let me talk about this point that you shouldn't have kids or you should have one fewer kid to lower your carbon footprint because it's just, you know, it's misanthropic and it's just wrong. So, you know, there was one study that came up with the top personal carbon footprint actions, and one of them was have one fewer kid. But if you dig down into that study, you see that they assumed that the consumption of parenthood would remain the same with each subsequent kid. People in the global South generally have large families, and it hasn't increased their carbon emissions at all. It's not the kids, it's the consumption. If we get to a place where we have decarbonized much of our economy, which is technologically and politically possible now, then you're talking about multiplying invisible carbon footprints. Mm -hmm, Totally. You know, if in 2070, we're in a net zero world, nobody has a carbon footprint. (laughs) So having more kids is not going to make one difference in either direction. And I think we're still in a place where we can keep that goal in mind and fight to make that possible so that we don't have to do things like reduce family size. We can solve our problems more holistically and allow each of us to live the lives that we want to live on the planet. Throughout the modern world, where especially in the wealthy nations of the West, we think about poverty and famine in other parts of the world, not just as acceptable, but almost as comforting, because they remind us of how secure and comfortable we are today. And I I had this interaction just before the pandemic, and an event I did, I keep thinking about, I think about it maybe every week, maybe every day, where I gave a talk about looking at how dire some of these situations could be. And afterwards, somebody came up to me who like assured me that he was not a climate denier. And then he said, so really, how bad is it going to get? And I said, well, you know, at two degrees, we're talking about 150 million people dying of air pollution. 
And he said, but that's out of 8 billion. And I said, well, yeah, I mean, I'm not talking about the total extinction of the human race here, but 150 million is 150 million. That's 25 holocausts. And he said, but out of 8 billion. And I think that 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 there is this I, danger. I think you were talking to Hannibal Lecter. Like that's that's the most terrifying <laughs> well, question I've ever actually, heard. Like uh, honestly, like what I was talking, the person I was talking to was the United States. I mean, that is the perspective that we have as a country. And as guilty as I feel, as responsible as I feel, as I'm sure Genevieve and to some extent Jane, you feel. All of us are actually behaving in ways that are imposing that kind of suffering on people elsewhere in the world. It's almost unavoidable given the systems that we live in today. And that is really horrifying. But I think the more clearly that we can see that, the more likely we are to be demanding real change of our leaders and the systems in which we live, which is, to your point about takeaways, Jane, really to me the most important thing, which is that like we really need to get our house in order and to help the rest of the world get their house in order. How do we get our house in order? What do what do I, as an individual or the people listening to this podcast, how do I make this happen on my level? Knowing all of that, what do I do? What do I personally need to do? Give me a thing to do, Genevieve. Okay, I have a whole list of things to do. Oh, great. Thank God. Pick one. Do it once a week. Okay. And things will change. First thing is vote. You can't do that once a week. But vote in every election. Vote for climate candidates, and then once they're in office, keep pressuring them. Call their DC offices, call their local offices, send them emails regularly. Okay, number two, join a campaign or a activist group. There are local chapters of groups called the Sunrise Movement and 350.org in many communities. If you're really hardcore, you can join Extinction Rebellion. They do direct actions which is a really good way of moving the Overton window over and getting people awake. If you don't have the time to do that, donate money. Donate money to organizations that are putting their bodies on the line. Here are some of them. Sunrise, Fridays for Future, which is the youth organization that is organizing the climate strikes that Greta Thunberg started. Greenpeace, and here are some social justice organizations, Uprose, and We Act. There are also two new organizations who are writing climate policy in a new way and lobbying on the Hill to get them passed. They are Climate Power and Evergreen Action. Donate to them. Or you can donate to groups that are working on electoral politics directly, like the Environmental Voter Project or Stacey Abrams' Fair Fight Action. The ability to put your preferred candidates in office is a huge part of the climate fight. Or here's another thing you can do. You can organize your workplace to ask your company to make greener business decisions or to lobby Congress for climate policies. And then finally, one of the most impactful things that you can do is simply talk about climate change in your social networks, especially when it feels most socially awkward and embarrassing. Because unless we continue to break the kind of conspiracy of climate silence that allows people to look away, we're not actually going to have the kind of pressure internally and psychologically in people that will help them join the climate movement. We as a culture need to normalize that it's actually healthy not to be happy 
in the face of climate change. And that it doesn't mean we're failed Americans. It means that we're actually human beings who are having an appropriate and ethical moral response to the suffering that is coming in the pipe for everybody, also our own children. So that is my big list of things to do. Pick one and go for it. David, I want to hear from you what you think we should do. I would say if what Genevieve laid out feels like pie in the sky, climate strike groups were launched in parts of the world by people with very little access to political or social power. They are often teenagers who don't have the vote even when they're living in democracies. Many of them aren't living in democracies. They are overwhelmingly girls. They are often trans and queer. These are people who are like on the most distant margins of global political power. And within the space of a few years, by simply refusing to accept their own impotence, they have literally remade the entire landscape of global climate politics. Like in the U.S., when we have, you know, Joe Biden, who Sunrise gave an F to in the primary, talking about this as an existential threat, that is because the protests worked. And they worked in an incredibly short amount of time. When I started writing about climate five years ago, I would not have thought that this kind of political change was at all possible. We are living through what is like a genuinely unprecedented global climate awakening, which has totally changed the landscape of what is possible. And it really has made the world and the future look sunnier. So it's not nearly bright enough. It still involves an enormous amount of preventable suffering, and it's on all of us to make that future better. But like the true, like, are we going to make humans extinct kind of futures that we were talking about as slim but real possibilities a few years ago, I think are much, much less likely today. And that is in large part, the result of climate protests by people who started their activism within the last few years. I was going to push back against David's more hopeful note (laughs) that we're not in danger of extinction. I don't think that extinction is off the table until emissions start to bend down. But I do agree with him that the fact that nations across the globe have made significant climate pledges to reach net zero emissions. Corporations, banks have made these kinds of pledges is entirely due to the political activity that has arisen since 2018. I would say even more importantly, like we can't set our standard at extinction. It's not like if we survive and avoid extinction that that's a success. Like there is huge suffering um, between here and there. And every degree of temperature rise is going to create more suffering. And every degree we avoid can help us avoid that. Genevieve, you brought up some of the larger powers and corporations, and yes, they have responded to pressure with regard to investing in reducing emissions and renewable energy, but we've seen in 2020 that fewer than 5% of offsets went to removing CO2 from the atmosphere. That's, that doesn't mean that like preserving virgin forests isn't awesome, but how much of those actions is just performative? How much of those actions is greenwashing? Okay, well, that's a really good point. So even Shell has come up with a net zero plan. But if you dig into it, you see that it mostly relies on a level of offsets, which is completely implausible, and on technologies that are unproven, that are promising to draw carbon out of the air. So yes, many of these net zero pledges are greenwashing. And there's a disclaimer in the back of the Shell plan that says, you know, readers should not make future projections based on what's written in this report. I mean, they really are covering their proverbial butts. 
But what is hopeful about these net zero pledges, even as they are greenwashing, is the fact that these companies feel pressure to make them at all, right? This is a sea change in politics. If they can't actually transform, they're going to be pushed out and new incumbents are going to come in. And the question is, can we do this fast enough to halt global warming in time to preserve much of the habitable world? Or is it going to take so long that, in fact, things are going to spiral out of control? But that brings us actually to a point of some disagreement. The dynamic that you're describing illustrates the power of individuals over companies. And as a result, also, I think, illustrates in a backward-looking way our responsibility. Half of all emissions in the entire history of humanity have come in the last 30 years. That's since Al Gore published his first book on warming. I often joke it's since the premiere of Friends, which means that actually the people who have done the lion's share of the damage to the planet are alive today. And it is true, of course, that the people who have been running Shell and Chevron and ExxonMobil have much more responsibility than I do or Genevieve does or Jane does. But it is also the case that all of us have benefited in significant ways from economic activity that has been powered by fossil fuels and to which we could have raised louder objections earlier. I want to contest the claim that we've all benefited from the fossil fuel system, because if you look at charts that show the rise of income inequality over the past 25 and 30 years, I mean, most of that wealth has been concentrated at the top. It's not like we've all seen those gains at all. So I don't know that we have to all take on a feeling of guilt for the rise of GDP under neoliberalism, because I don't know that most of us have actually even seen that money. And as you said earlier, David, like our way of life is no longer dependent on fossil fuels. We can transition to a clean energy system, to clean systems, and maintain largely our quality of life. So I'm not going to accept that responsibility. People need to hear a lot of things more than once to really absorb it. Like I learned that as a parent. I only started getting worried about the climate crisis after my son was born. And I didn't even realize how bad it was going to be, I would say, until about like mid-2017 or 2018, reading your article and going down the rabbit hole from there. So I think we need to really tell the climate story as a story of good and evil, because these people have known for decades what their products were going to do. And not only did they keep producing and selling fossil fuels, they lied about it. They lied about what they knew, and they tried to do everything they could to capture our political system just to sustain their own wealth and power. I think that's pretty bad. It's criminal. It's absolutely criminal. David, what do you what do you make of what Genevieve said about the messaging about good and evil there? I think that this story is one about our responsibility towards other humans, in which collectively human behavior has imperiled the future of the planet. I think as a result, we have to talk about it in terms of good and evil, that there are very obvious sides. And I think that there are certain actors who have played hugely disproportionate, often toxic roles in that story, namely the fossil fuel industry and their sort of allies in political power, not just in the U.S., but all around the world. I just don't think that that's the end-all, be-all of it, because I do think that many people even today think, okay... I want the future to be stable and green and prosperous, but I don't want to pay a dollar more at the pump for a gallon of gas and may actually vote in an election on that basis. And that's not to say that that person is as culpable as the CEOs of ExxonMobil. 
Obviously, there's a huge spectrum of culpability, but I think that a huge majority of Americans are understandably viewed by people elsewhere in the world as contributing to the problem as opposed to contributing to the solution, and that we should not dismiss that judgment because we happen to think, well, I was just doing it for myself or I was just acting in the system in which I live. We should take seriously that judgment and try to think about what we can do to sort of make it right, so to speak. I think it's worthwhile to point out that the vast majority of Americans are literally going to be richer once we have decarbonized because their electricity, their heating, their transportation, and their health care costs are going to go down significantly. I mean, Vice President Harris would often say during the presidential campaign that most Americans didn't even have $400 in their wallets to help cover an emergency. So people's real incomes are going to rise significantly once we've decarbonized. And that means that decarbonization is not a cost, but a benefit. It is going to be a benefit to most Americans. If we manage it right. <laughs> yeah, but and, and a benefit when? Because I think a lot of this messaging relies on something that in general people do not like, which is you may need to do a thing or change a thing about your life for a future that we have not yet defined. From a messaging perspective, how do we message the urgency? How do we talk about what needs to change? But how do we do that, one, effectively, and two, to everyone? Okay, so the first part is understanding why we have to do this. And I would argue that most Americans still don't know enough about global heating and the climate crisis. So in our polling at End Climate Silence, it shows that most Americans learn everything they know about the climate crisis from the news media. And this is absolutely chilling because the news media is, <laughs> <laughs> is still not reporting on the crisis accurately or with the urgency that it deserves. The second piece is a kind of climate communication that shows people how this is going to affect them. Most people think of this as a crisis that's for the global South or for the distant future or for, you know, our grandchildren's grandchildren or whatever. And it's up to every single communicator, as far as I'm concerned, to make it clear in really concrete embodied terms what this crisis is going to mean for the children who are alive today. What I think we need to do is take everyone who already thinks they know something about the climate crisis and thinks they're concerned about it and activate them by giving them the information they need, showing them how it's personal and converting fear into a kind of outrage that allows them to take up this fight. And then the third piece of that is really showing how making these changes that are required would be such a benefit to them. It's just really important to remember that it actually has to be done right now. We don't get another shot at this. David, do you want to have the final word here on the messaging? Well, I think the last point that Genevieve mentioned is maybe the most important, which is just to say that the benefits are really vivid. They're really clear. Everybody agrees that the world will be better off the faster we move. And that really wasn't the case five or 10 years ago. There was much more muddled analysis and messaging then. And I think we have to take advantage of the new unanimity and not let people, you know, fall back on the logic of status quo bias and incumbency and just think that change is expensive and difficult. 
what I worry about is that the political dynamics are not entirely governed, especially in the U.S., by public opinion. If they were, we probably would already be moving much faster than we are. There are obstacles in the way laid by incumbent entrenched interests, and we need to figure out ways to uproot them. That doesn't mean that everybody who cares about climate needs to be going to an Extinction Rebellion protest. It doesn't even mean that they need to be calling their representative. There is a very small ask that can be made, which is just to support the people who support aggressive climate action. We're talking about massive, immediate, or quasi-immediate payback for all of the investments we're making. David Wallace-Wells and Genevieve Gunther, thank you both so much for joining me today. Thanks, Jane. It's been great. Thanks, guys. David Wallace-Wells is an editor-at-large at New York Magazine and the author of The Uninhabitable Earth. Genevieve Gunther is the founder and director of End Climate Silence and the author of the forthcoming book, The Language of Climate Politics. If you want to learn more about personal responsibility, I recommend Jason Mark's article in the Sierra Club magazine, Yes, Actually, Individual Responsibility is Essential to Solving the Climate Crisis, and the New York Times Guest Essay by Auden Schendler, Worrying about your carbon footprint is exactly what big oil wants you to do. You can find links to these in our episode notes. Finally, I really appreciate the time that both of my guests spent explaining this issue to me. If we want real solutions, we're going to have to get folks involved across the political and societal spectrum. Climate change can't just be an issue that only the 1% gets involved in by telling the 99% what to do. It's a complicated issue, but it's one we have to face together. And it's one that, let's not lie to ourselves, a lot of corporations would really rather they not take any responsibility on either. So, this is hard. It's hard for me to understand, it's hard to explain, and it's really hard for us not to all get our own biases in the way. But I hope that today's episode is the start of a different conversation about climate change. Because as fun as doomerism is, doomerism doesn't do anything. The Argument is a production of New York Times Opinion. It's produced by Phoebe Lett, Elisa Gutierrez, and Vishaka Durba. Edited by Sarah Geis. With original music and sound design by Isaac Jones. And engineering by Carol Sabarau. Fact-checking by Mary Marge Locker. And audience strategy by Shannon Busta. Special thanks this week to Kristen Lynn and the good people at Switch and Board Podcast Studio here in Washington, D.C. I don't know about you, but anytime I've been to Europe, I feel like they live beautifully and I'm actually jealous of the societies they've managed to construct. Yeah, but their dishwashers do not work. <laughs> not one device works. That's sounding very Trumpy. What about their have toilet? You, if you've ever tried to roast a chicken in England, nothing works. <laughs>